there, John. Let me take you back in time. Uh, would you like to climb aboard the Wayback Machine? How far back are we going? Uh, just to when you and I decided we were going to do a podcast about Yacht Rock, so three years okay. ago, maybe? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, we had uh, immersed ourselves, so we thought, into the entirety of the Yacht Rock catalog. Thought we knew it all. Yeah. We had our sort of <laughs> Alexander the Great moment where, upon witnessing the depth of our Yacht Rock knowledge, we wept where there were no more <laughs> uh, discoveries to be made. Yeah. You more than me, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, you know, I've always thought I know it all, and so I did thought I know it all. But you started tracking down these names that I had not ever heard before. Oh, you yeah. started firing them off to me. Remember, there was um, Mark Jordan, Ned Doheny, and Dane Donahue were the three. Those yes. were the, Those like are the, the triggers. Three. Yeah, Household right. names, of course, to the Yacht Rock faithful. But to us, you know, in our nascence, we're like, what? Ooh. What else is out there? And then right. I discovered Bill LaBounty. Um not that I discovered him, but I discovered him for myself. And so this just kept happening and happening and happening, and it's still happening to this day. Yes, it is. And we call those things, in part, buried treasures. Right. We have a whole segment on buried treasures, but yes, you're right. Yeah, we did a whole segment. We've done it every episode in our lightning round. We cover a buried treasure, and we've kind of posited as to why they were buried. Sometimes we think, well, maybe it was the emergence of disco. Uh, or the emergence of the new sound of the early 80s. We talked about yep. the day of the yassing. So whatever happened, these things got buried, and now we're unearthing them, and it's like just pure joy and pure bliss. Yeah, and uh, that's where we're headed today. We are going back to, well, it's even buried within uh, another genre because uh, our guest spent much of his career doing Christian music, so we cannot forget that. Uh, there is a connection from Christian music to yacht rock. We call that, what do they call that, Jesus yacht or arc rock or <laughs> there's all kinds of names for it. Yep. But why don't you go and introduce our guests and we can dig into that. Absolutely. Well, we have a, a living, breathing, buried treasure, and I hope you won't take offense to that. My emphasis is on the treasure part. And yep. We could discuss about why or if it should have been buried. But um, again, household name to the Yacht Rock faithful. But to those who aren't familiar, you are going to be very pleased to get to know much more about our guest, Chris Christian. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tom and John. It's fun to be with you guys. Yeah, we are super excited. I uh, I, I told my wife, like, as I'm researching, because as you just heard us explain, right? So we discover, oh, there's this new person I haven't heard of. Let me check out the record. And your record, which we'll get into today, is just so good and so, what they say, yachty, um, that it was just pure candy. And so, as I did, John, you know, with uh, Bill Labonte or Tate Donahue, you start researching and you say, well, what else is out there? And you expect, or at least you hope that maybe there's another record or maybe there's like some interesting factoid or hopefully the album's got personnel on it. Right. Well, Chris, at risk of embarrassing you, I just have to set the stage for people who don't know the name. Yeah. Um, let me just read a few things from your website and uh, Wikipedia. So please indulge me just for a minute. Chris Christian songs have been recorded by Elvis Presley, Olivia Newton-John, Hall & Oates, Natalie Cole, Sheena Easton, the Pointer Sisters, Al Jarreau, the Carpenters. John, have you heard of any of these people yet? <laughs> Most of them, yeah. Uh, Amy Grant, <laughs> Patty Austin, Dionne Warwick, America, the Imperials, one of my personal faves, BJ yeah. Thomas, Marilyn McCoo, Cheryl Ladd. I never knew there was a Cheryl Ladd singer. I just knew this pretty actress. Same person. Uh, Pat <laughs> yes. Boone, Donnie Osmond, um, has produced the likes of the Pointer Sisters, Patty Austin, Al Jarreau, Natalie Cole, Amy Grant, Dallas Cowboys. We'll come back to that. B.J. Thomas, uh, again, Marilyn McCoo, Eric Champion, Allie Lowen, Pat Boone. I mean, what? <laughs> like, I told my wife, I'm like, they got to write a book about this guy. Well, stick a pin in that because we're going to get back to all of that. So, Chris, just give us a sense for where you started, how you got into the Yacht Rock scene, and then we'll talk about everything that came after that. So, before Yacht Rock, right, you were already a recording artist. How did you get discovered and kind of put into this whole Yacht Rock universe? Well, first of all, in, in two times in my life, I went to Nashville to make pop music. I was a Christian as a my individual beliefs, but I just went to make Three Dog Night, Carpenters, uh, The Association, you know, pop music, because I love pop music. Well, the church had a little group called Dogwood, and I thought they were real good, and Pat Boone was just starting a new contemporary kind of gospel 
label. Of course, back then there was gospel, pop, and country. That was it. If you were gospel, you were Bill Gaither, uh, the Imperials, the Quartet, that kind of thing. But uh, I, this Dogwood group sounded like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, so I produced them in my pop way. Word, the big Christian label in Waco, heard it and said, we just signed B.J. Thomas, and you did that Dogwood album. We want you to do B.J. Thomas. So I had just done one album for $5,000 for Pat Boone, <laughs> and, and they asked me to do B.J. Thomas, who had just come off, you know, Somebody Done Somebody Wrong song, Raindrops, and all these major hits. And so that album is an album that ended up being called Home Where I Belong. And that now is platinum. I mean, so that exploded. Mm -hmm. And then they said, well, we don't know what kind of, what that is really, but we want to give you five album money for five albums a year for five years to go do a bunch more of them. Because they're they're used to selling, you know, 15 to 20,000 records on a big album. And this went to gold in one year, you know, 500,000. And so I said, well, we didn't know who to look for to sing, but I had all this money for albums. And so a little girl named Amy Grant went to church where we went, and she sang a few songs about Jesus. So I said, Amy, you want to do a record? <laughs> and so had, she was so young at 15, her father had, had to sign the contract with her. But we did it. And, of course, we didn't know what a 16-year-old girl singing about her faith was supposed to sound like, you know. But I just did it like the Carpenters record. I just I hired Joe Osborne, who was, you know, a well-known bass player in the whole Wrecking Crew and Yacht Rock and all that. And we and we wrote songs that were kind of like uh, the Carpenters. And so the first song went to top 10. I mean, in the nation. She's 16 years old. And had two more top 10s on it. Of course, then between BJ and Amy, that created an industry. Now it wasn't fifteen or 20,000 records. Now it was a half a million and up. And, uh, and so anyway, there, I didn't go to Nashville to do Christian music. I went to Nashville to do pop music. So fast forward you, uh, to your question, how did I get into Yacht Rock? <laughs> I just went to L.A. to do pop music. <laughs> Again, trying just to do pop music. Well, the first guy I have lunch with is a guy named Robert Kardashian. And we became very close friends, and our families became great friends. And this is when the kids were like six, four, and two, you know, at that time. <laughs> and so Robert called Neil Bogart, who had just started a label called Boardwalk. And he, he had just come off the disco era with Casablanca Records and the Donna Sumner Village People, all that stuff. And, and so Robert got me signed to, with Neil Bogart as the first artist on Boardwalk Records. And... You know, why? Now, I wrote the songs for about eight months before I played them for Robert. And here was kind of another little backstory. Back the guy that I wrote most of all my songs with was a guy named J.C. Crowley. And he wrote Baby Come Back and was in Player. So, and, right. and of course, the guy I was in a, a Cotton Lord and Christian, a group with that I replaced a guy named Steve Kipner it, to, to form a group called <laughs> Cotton Lord and Christian. So Steve and I wrote songs together. Oh J.C. Crowley and I wrote songs together. And a guy named Kerry Chater and I, who was in Gary Puckett and the Union Gap, we wrote songs together and had carpenter cuts and stuff. And so these were just the people I was writing with. And Neil Bogart said, oh, well, Christopher Cross was just taken off at that time. Ride Like the Wind maybe was at the top and selling was coming. And he said, well, we got our Christopher Cross. <laughs> oh, and so I think he looked at me because he'd already done disco and village people and kind of that style of music. And he saw this, the sense of the music getting into more melodic songs and more melodies and more lyrics and more sweet production. And I think, uh, and then Bob Gaudio then was, Bob, Bob Kardashian got Bob Gaudio to produce the album. He had just come off with Neil Diamond, You Don't Bring Me Flowers with Barbara Streisand. And, of course, he's Four Seasons, Oh, What a Night, and all those kind of yep. songs. And yep. so Bob produced the record. And between Bob and I, I mean, we just invited all of our friends to be on the record because I'd written with Robbie Patton, who'd written for Elton John and wrote Hold Me with Fleetwood Mac. And uh, Cheryl Ladd, I'd sung on her record, and we were friends. We'd go on vacations together, she and her husband and my wife and I. <laughs> and... Uh, and so I needed a vocal on this song called I'll Always Be With You. So I, Brian said, well, hey, Cheryl's not doing anything this afternoon. She'll come do it. So Cheryl came over and sang it. And we didn't know it was going to be a single. Well, Always Be With You turned out to be a song that Bob Gaudio said, we need to change the title to I Want You, I Need You. And that song became top 10 
number one in New York and a lot of cities, a lot of countries, and top ten pretty much everywhere. And 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 then we, uh, you know, we got Bill Champlin, Tommy Funderburk, and I went to church together. So he he came on the record. Uh, I wanted Nigel Ocean to play on this song that was kind of a Elton John tumbleweed kind of song. So Bob Gaudio said, "Well, I know Nigel, so he Nigel, would you come play on this?" <laughs> so he came and. And it was built. It was all these people, and then Chris. I call Christopher Cross, who we had met at the Roxy, and we were both from Texas. I was from Abilene, he was from Austin. So I said, "Hey, Chris, would you come play? We need a solo on one of these songs." And he's sure, man. So he played the solo, and it, we didn't know it was yacht rock. We didn't know it was West Coast. We just knew it was good songs yeah. written by good songwriters and Bob, and produced really well by one of the greatest producers of our era, Bob Gaudio. And so then all that style of music and a lot of people on that album helped really create uh, Yacht Rock. Oh, and let me, the duet on the second single was with Amy Holland, who ended up marrying Michael McDonald. So I guess I've heard him called the king of Yacht Rock. Yeah, yeah. And then David Foster came and played on Arranged One Song. So all of us kind of had our own little style that turned into Yacht Rock, but it wasn't that when we were doing it. That is the essence right there. That story, Tom, is the essence, the core center of Yacht Rock. It's the idea that someone knows this guy, someone knows that guy. Everybody's playing on each other's stuff. The way that one person's ideas or one person's sound feeds another, you get Foster, you get, uh, you know, J.C. Crowley, uh, all these people, and they connect on this music. Everybody bringing a little slice of what they do well, and then the whole just adds up and you know Bob Gaudio I wanted to set the stage you mentioned a little bit you know being um obviously from four seasons and then the Neil Diamond uh era that he produced and that sound the stuff that he did with Neil though it wasn't yacht rock at the time sonically if you listen to the album you don't bring me flowers or September morn that that Bob Gaudio did the cleanliness the the precision the beauty of the just the the sounds are absolutely the same as what you would hear on a great yacht rock record, you know? But the question I was, <laughs> it's like this story was, is there's just, I don't know what questions to ask because <laughs> I didn't expect all of that story to go all there. But I did want to know when you were writing, because I noticed several of the songs, as you mentioned on this album, are written, co-written with J.C. Crowley, not all of them. But um, what did that writing partnership look like? Were you the two of you in a room together? Was it one did music, one did lyrics? Just how did that work functionally? Well, when I was in Cotton Lawn and Christian, uh, my bandmate, Daryl Cotton, his uh, girlfriend was Olivia Newton-John's seamstress. And so... uh, (laughs) They were saying, we want to cut an album in Nashville, Tennessee. Do y'all know anybody in Nashville, Tennessee that can help us put an album together? So Fleur says, well, my boyfriend Daryl's in a group with a guy that produces in Nashville. So John Farrar called me, Olivia's producer, and he said, hey, mate, we'd like to come to Nashville. Can you set up a session for us? And I knew all the top musicians. And after BJ and Amy and all that stuff, I was using the A team, you know. Yeah, And so I set the whole thing up. They stayed with us for a couple of weeks while she, we were recording Don't Stop Believing. And then John and I went down to my studio basement. We wrote a song on the album. So I got to know all the Australian people. Steve Kipner was from Australia, who I'd replaced in Cotton Lawn Christian. Olivia and John were from Australia, or Olivia was. And so a guy named Peter Beckett was also from there. And he was in a group with Daryl Cotton uh, of Cotton Lawn and Christian. Uh, and and so was Rick Springfield in the Rick Springfield and B Bertles from the Little River Band. They were all in an Australian group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Zoot. Yeah, Zoot. All pink, right? Yep. They were all pink. <laughs> and so I got to know all the Australian people, and it, it just it, it kind of went that way. And then because of Peter, I met JC, who was a well probably the main writer. You know, a player. I mean, Peter was a good writer, too, but J.C. was an incredible writer and went on to write great things after we worked together. But we just hit it off day one, and we started writing. And, and you know, we didn't know we were writing for a pop album for me that would be on Boardwalk. We were just writing songs to see if anyone was interested and uh, had a great time. But mm. we went to our—I bought the house from John Farrar. That's where I was headed with Olivia. <laughs> Uh, he had a place on Cherokee Lane that he, we were looking to move there or have a house in Beverly Hills to try to get into the pop world. And he said, hey, mate, I'm selling my house. You want it? And I knew it was perfect for us because it was set up for a music producer guy. 
So we bought it and had a little studio over there. And that's where all the writers, JC and Jerry Beckley from America and Dan Peake from America and uh, uh, you know Denise Williams and everybody would come over and we'd just write for the day and hang out. And that was a very creative. And Nathan East became one of my best friends in the world. In fact, he says, I think it's one of the mm-hmm. first home studios I ever went to, and it just had a spiritual vibe to it, and I just loved it. Mm. It's so funny, John, because, we, you know, I think a lot of times we even ask these artists, especially those that didn't go on to this huge fame and fortune, like, how did the talent get assembled? And I guess we just assume that, you know, a producer's handpicking his session cats, and there's just not that much story to it. But in this case, it feels like there's all this serendipity. It's a who, who knows who. I just got it just for our, our Yachty uh, friends who just get off on personnel real quick. The people we haven't <laughs> yeah. mentioned yet. So they'll recognize these names. On guitar, Paul Jackson Jr., Percussion, Paulito DaCosta. Synthesizer, Greg Matheson. Michael Landau on guitar. Uh, Michael Boddicker. Did I already say him? Nope. Who else? Carlos Vega. Yep, yep. Carlos Vega. David Hungate's on bass for a tune. You mentioned Amy Holland. Bill Champlin, of course, who's also Frankie Valley singing back there with Tommy Funderburg. I just don't want to miss anyone that our friends are going to really just love. Well, one thing i got to point out, Tom, that you don't have the... The, the vinyl on the, the credits on the for song by song instrumental credits. There's even to this is so yacht rock right here to the detail that a couple of these songs say, say who's on guitar, but they actually distinguish who's doing rhythm guitar and who's doing the one note guitar. Right. Ooh, right. That's my thing. That too. is so yachty. Yeah. <laughs> so my question then for you is. Aside from all the serendipity, um, what was it like? Was this the first time that you felt you were really going to be thrust into? I know you had already recorded records, but now you are the front man in front of the star-studded cast. Was that a transition for you at all, just mentally or logistically? Well, you know, at Cotton Lloyd and Christian, we were a trio, but we had two or three top 40 records. And we did Midnight Special and American Bandstand and all that. So I was in that group, not as a solo artist, but as a group. But then I was working with B.J. Thomas, and we did Don't Worry Baby, which went to number two in the A. It was top 40 and number two in the AC. And that's a pretty big record, you know. And then Olivia Newton-Johns went gold and everything. Amy Grant's now up to 30, 40 million records. So I was around a lot of albums that had success. But the funny thing about me, I never wanted to be a star. Uh, A lot of people, I've seen some documentaries lately that we just always dreamed of being a star. You know, and I... That, to me, just doesn't resonate with me because I just wanted to make great music. <laughs> I wanted to write great songs. I wanted to make great music that when somebody hears it on the radio, they got to put this, or, or however they hear it. I mean, if they're driving, they turn the steering wheel, they got to drive off the road and sit down and listen to it. Because, yeah. you know, you've had a few of those <laughs> songs yourself, and I have too. Yeah. But you just want to play something that when, when Don't Worry Baby went into that Bridge of all acoustic guitar, and BJ sings this high, high uh, acapella thing. I mean, it's just, and Joe Leach does all this sliding bass stuff. I mean, to me, that's Nirvana. That's what I wanted to do was to do that kind of music. And as an artist, I just tried to do the same thing. Uh, and, of course, I, I was able to – I'd already had enough success in so many albums that I was able to get all these great players. And Bob Gaudio had great success, too. Of course, Umberto Gatica mixed it. I don't know if you saw that on the album. but I did, yes. He also mixed the Cotton Lloyd and Christian albums. That's how I met him when he first came from Chile. And the funny thing is when I did two Marilyn McCoo albums – he mixed that single, Me Nobody Knows, that was nominated for a Grammy and, and was a number one song, the Me Nobody Knows. So three of the projects that are my biggest projects, Umberto was the engineer on. And then Jack Puig pretty much did everything else in L.A. He was the engineer. And Dan Huff played guitar on pretty much everything. So I just had great musicians around me, and they played. And we all got along great, and it was a hang. Yeah. In fact, there was another producer one time that had a bunch of musicians. They're all playing ping pong, and the artist was freaking out because his. Uh, he just told me the other day. He said, "You know, I was there a whole day, and we didn't get anything cut, and they're all playing ping pong and pool." And he went up to the producer and he said, 
hey, man, this is on my budget. I'm going to have to recoup this. Uh, we hadn't got anything recorded yet. And the producer looked at him and went, hey, bro, we're paying for the hang. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Obviously, I, I can really see why you had so much success as a producer above and beyond being on the front of the record, having your name on the back, because you're obviously you're seeing all of the elements. And that's what you know a good producer does. You're you're interested in what the guitar player is doing, what the bass player is doing, not just, OK, how loud can my vocal be in the mix? But you it says here you were uh, uh, you produced albums that were nominated for nine Grammys, but won four Grammys. What were the four Grammys? I could not find uh, that. B.J. Thomas, Imperials, uh, Dan Peake, and um, uh, the Boone Girls, Pat Boone's daughters. Wow. Okay. And I don't know all the ones nominated, but they. Oh, and Marilyn 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 McCoo was one nominated, but didn't win. Okay. Whew. Well, I have a couple questions about the this, again this record. Um, I guess I'll save one for later. We, um, so. I, Fast forward to after this record comes out, it has some commercial success, obviously, with a top 10 sing, uh, single. Uh, did the Ashford and Simpson cover, um, did that get radio play as well? That, that was top 10 in AC, which would be the Yacht Rock kind of format, because that was with Amy Holland, you know. Mm-hmm. So my question is sort of twofold. One is for you personally. So where does your career go after this? And I'm trying to parse together at the end of the day, how does a treasure like this album get buried? And forgive me, I didn't know anything about it until a year ago. Even though I recognized a couple of the songs on it now, once I heard it, but so where did you go from here? And then what happened to this record? Well, it's you know someone once said in an interview they said, "What does it feel like to be a one-hit wonder?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, I don't know." <laughs> <laughs> well, the reality is I'd had a I had three top ten, four top ten records, and Christian number one, sixty Christian number ones, and all that. But it, that's what I mean. Right? Anyway, I said, "Well." <laughs> I feel like the luckiest guy that ever breathed air. Do you know how hard it is to have a hit record? <laughs> I mean, all the yeah, st- even one. All the stars have to line up. The label, the public, the production, the song, the singer, your performance. All of it has to be lined up at the same time. And and so for anybody to have a top 10 national global pop record, I mean, shoot. Of course, I had lots of number one records and top tens of people I produced and all that. But as far as an artist, I just felt honored. And I, they just don't understand how hard it is to even have one, you know. It, what is the one hit? Is it I want you, I need you? Yeah, I want you, I need you is the big one. But again, ain't nothing like the real thing with Amy Holland was top ten in AC. Right. And I, it, it right. did go up on the top 100 as well. Uh, but here's what happened. Um Make It Last was the next single, Zooming Up the Charts. I was already on two top ten records, so, you know, Neil was fulfilling his his dream of we've got our Christopher Cross, because that was the genre of the day that radio wanted to play and people wanted to hear. Uh, What You Need You was number one in New York for like 13 weeks or something. I mean, it was just a big record in a lot of places. But Neil Bogart passed away at 37. And and he was when you have a label like Clive Davis and Neil Bogart and those kind of people, I mean when they pass away, they're the they're the heart and soul and the uh, behind the label. You know these things aren't successful because they got lucky. These these things are successful because they know what they're doing, and they know what great songs are. They knew how to work radio. They knew how to work retail, and so basically my second album was halfway done, and then. Uh, you know, there was a song called Walnut Hill that we just re-released this album with some extra cuts on it, bonus cuts. 
and Walnut Hill's probably one I think the best record they ever made. Uh, it's got Dan Huff playing guitar work that you've never heard anything like this. It's unbelievable. Mm. And lines like, her eyes are weapons that kill. One night they murdered on Walnut Hill. I mean, Walnut Hill. Just great. I was going to ask you where those tracks came from because you could get them on Spotify, but if you buy the vinyl, you, you won't have them. Well, no, because it was so, going to be on my second album. Okay. So it wasn't on the first album, but when Neil Bogart died, we had half the album done. Did uh, Gaudio, Was Gaudio producing that as well? Because sonically it's similar. Well, I actually, he was involved in that. I kind of produced that one, that one thing. But, you know, I was in, he was always asking me questions. I was always asking him questions. And we did a song called Last Goodbye that Bob produced. And then I asked David Foster to come give it a whole other kind of piano Chicago kind of thing. So we did it at Last Goodbye in a totally different way. Because it's a great song that JC and, I, JC and I wrote. But I don't think we captured it on our cut on the original vinyl. So... Mm, I really because that one always catches my attention. I, I really like the, and that's the, obviously the original version. So, but I, I, you know, well, it's a blue eyed to each his own. It's a blue eyed soul on the original version. Yeah, but with David, we did it more like a hard habit to break. You know, kind of, okay, kind of. Uh, All right. You can just tell by the piano. You listen to the piano. You wouldn't have to know who it is. You, I mean, you would know who it is just by listening to it. Yeah. So you um, spent a lot of time. Uh, before and after uh, you've won uh, doing Christian music you won uh, Dove Awards which are for those that don't know those are kind of the Christian uh, Grammys Um, how much time how much thought have you ever given to obviously being spiritual you know about uh, the force of God in your life and the path to what degree have you thought about the what if this album had gone huge how different would your life have been than what it is now? Have you ever really wrestled with that question? I went to L.A. As I, had, as I put in my book, there's a chapter called Can I Swim with the Big Fish? <laughs> and that was, I, I was working with Olivia and Elvis Presley and B.J. Thomas and Amy Grant in Nashville. And so and everything in Christian music we, that my engineer, Brown Bannister, Bannister, and I put out would go to top 10 pretty much or, or high on the chart. A lot of it because it was a new industry and there wasn't that much product coming out. But I wanted to go to LA. That's the big fish. That's the real, there's not what, there's not one more, there's not a better group of musicians, songwriters and record people than in LA. So I went there and I guess I accomplished to see if I could. Yeah, I can. I can swim with the big fish. Mm-hmm. And I did it, and I enjoyed it. So it was more about seeing if I could do it personally than how big I got. Because no matter, no matter how big anybody gets, they eventually get old except for a few like Elvis, you know. But <laughs> most of the people, you have your run, and it may go a year, it may go two, five, maybe ten, but you eventually die off. So I just wanted to see if I could do it, mm. and I did it. But then when I moved back to Dallas, then I started working with Dallas Cowboys and Lou Diamond Phillips on scoring a movie and bought a movie studio. And so those things would have never happened if my Yacht Rock career would have kept going and done more things. So I didn't get to see see that go on, but I was able to do other things and meet other people that I never would have met. Right. That's why I asked, because you may not have ever seen this second chapter look the same. But Exactly. Obviously, the second chapter, which I think Tom was about to get to, has some amazing things in it, too. I mean, we, we have uh, wow. music for the NFL. We've got a uh, movie. Uh, it just goes on. You were, I, at one point, I think, uh, partners with Ross Perot, um, a show that was on, <laughs> that you produced with your brother, a children's show on PBS. Um, you were CEO of World Digital Media Group in YMC Records, which is the joint venture by Radio Shack, speaking of buried treasures, Dish Network and Sirius Radio. So that had to be a big deal. Uh, vice chairman and managing partner for the WNBA's Dallas Wings. And my co-host here is asking you what would have been. I mean, geez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, what it was is amazing. Well, I wouldn't have done that had I been right. put at my fourth, fifth, and sixth Boardwalk Neil Bogart record. So uh, again, I go back to. I, in fact, I never toured. I found out my that record. This record you're talking about was number one in the Philippines and was really big in Japan. I found out later, but I didn't know, and I didn't ever go tour. I still haven't gone to Japan <laughs> to tour, hmm. but 
it was just I never thought of myself as an, an artist because I was always in the studio and writing songs with blue jeans and T-shirts with Steve Kipner and J.C. Crowley. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just this was fun to me, creating. Wow. But I learned I worked for Wayne Newton really early on when I met him in Nashville. He asked me to be in his band at the Sands Hotel in Vegas. And so I went there and I went out and I for six months I was his in his five person group band. Now we had a fifty person orchestra behind us, but I was in his band. And what I realized, even though he's one of the greatest entertainers probably that ever came to Vegas and maybe in the world, I, we were doing basically the same show every night. And and after two or three months, I just went up and I said, I love you, Wayne. I love what this show and it's you couldn't ask for a better gig for a musician, at least for most musicians. But I I can't I can't keep doing the same thing over and over every night. I have to, I have to create. And so he said, okay, well let me call Paul Anka. He's got a studio. I'll book you some time. And once you spend the days over there writing songs, and so that was fun for a while. And I got two or three songs in a movie that his orchestra orchestra played in. And but but again, I realized that Vegas was not where the great musicians were. Vegas were a lot of good musicians, but Nashville and L.A. at that time were the the best. And so anyway, I just I was meant to create, not to do the same thing over and over. And as an artist, that's kind of what you do. You have a hit record, and you sing the same songs over and over and over and go on the road. And I didn't really want to go on the road or sing the same songs over and over. So I guess I wasn't destined to be a long-term artist. Long legacy, though, when it, when it all oh. shakes out. Amazing. Well, to that point, John, I, going back to what I told my wife, I'm like, I'm reading all this stuff and I'm reading it aloud to her. And she's like, this can't be real. I said, well, somebody's got to write a book about this guy or make a movie. And well, somebody did write a book about this guy. <laughs> and we have the guy right here. So tell us about your book. It's called A Grandma's A Grandmother's Prayer. Grandmother's Prayer. So tell us what this is, what inspired you to write it, and what can people expect to uh, learn in this book? Well, the reason for the title, uh, I was talking to Steve Kipner on the phone, and I told him I was writing a book about my life and all the unusual things that happened. And he said, well, mate, you're not going to call it the things I did in music, are you? And I said, no. <laughs> he said, because nobody buy it if you did that. <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, I'm going to call it Grandmother's Prayer. He said, oh, I love that. Tell me the story. And so it, it piqued his interest in why are you calling it that? And then moments in a music life, because it is my life in music. But here's the reason for the title. I grew up in a, in a very faithful family, a Christian family. And my grandmother, since I was born, always said, let little Chris go into the world and preach the gospel. And I, mm-hmm. we never prayed for breakfast, lunch, dinner, that she didn't pray, let little Chris go into the world and preach the gospel. Well, of course, as a little kid, how am I going to go into the world? You know, I, I'm not fig- I don't know where Amarillo, Texas is, so... But I go to Nashville to to just do pop music. And the way, the coincidence is, I have a favorite saying that I use in the documentary that coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And there's been so many of those coincidences in my life that shouldn't happen. I mean, right. uh, so I go to Nashville. I do a $5,000 album that I told you about. It goes to Mm -hmm. B.J. Thomas platinum selling artist. Then it goes to Amy Grant, 40 million, and, and she's 16. Now, how could anyone think that this is going to be successful? Then I go to LA and the first person I meet is Robert Kardashian. Then that goes into <laughs> that goes into Neil Bogart. Then he calls Bob Gaudio. And oh, by the way, the first song that I ever had recorded that I wrote in high school and I never played him the song was by Elvis Presley. Love Song of the Year. The first song I ever had recorded, I didn't play him a song, I didn't know Elvis, and I wrote a song in high school that he decides to record. What What are the chances? How? Right, yeah. I mean, wow. that, that's why, that's a real coincidence right there. You yeah, know? no kidding. So yes. anyway, I called it that because since my grandmother always prayed, let little Chris go into the world and preach the gospel, and what, I, what happened was I started working with B.J. Thomas and Amy Grant, and that music Today is called contemporary Christian music, and it goes mm-hmm. into every corner of the world because of the internet. 
So that's why I called it an answer to my grandmother's prayer. Amazing. Well, the whole story is amazing. I mean, <laughs> Just stunning. This going back to the the yacht rock portion of this, since we are a yacht rock podcast, the listeners, if they are not familiar with this album, I'm not saying this just because I'm on a, a video call with you, Chris. It <laughs> is pure yacht rock. It really well written, very well recorded. Um, it has all of the elements, John. It's got sophistication. It's got it's clean. It's crisp. It's great performances. I mean, I just I'm like addicted to it. I just I it's just amazing. So everyone's got to check it out. And it's all essential in my mind. Yeah, and and now we have four bonus cuts, so that's even better. Yeah, you know? ab- absolutely. I'm just floored by it, I'm, and I'm floored by the whole path because I did all my research on you and I thought I had questions all figured out and it just you still blew my mind there Chris well, you know it, what a story if you can if you can just put yourself in my shoes I was there and just happened to meet Robert he calls Neil Bogart yeah let's sign Chris <laughs> when you're looking for a Christopher Cross kind of guy and then he calls He's got the right name yeah <laughs> then he calls and we're both from Texas oh yeah that's right yeah yeah and so then uh, then uh, you know he calls Bob Gaudio then sure enough we started just bringing all our friends in. This really was the most golden era of music. In fact, I think 1981 was probably the greatest year of music of all time because we all got in a studio. We all collaborated. And you know what? As writers, I can't think of one argument or one disagreement. Sure, we had, well, what if we tried this? No, I don't like that. Okay, well, what if we tried this over here? I mean, it was just always friendly and just trying to figure out we both wanted the greatest song possible. And nobody said, well, that's my idea. You want to use more of, you're, we're using more of your ideas than my ideas. And I've seen that happen a lot. But all yeah. the people I worked with were just, uh, they were trying to do the best music they could do it. And, and obviously, we all knew that if we worked with another great writer, the chances were twice as good that maybe maybe we'd come up with something great. Well, uh, I have one last question, John, and I don't know if you have one last question, but I'm going to sort of put you on no, the spot, Chris, if you don't mind. So uh, we mentioned that Buried Treasures is a recurring feature on the podcast, right? And yep. uh, for better or for worse, this album is a buried treasure, certainly a treasure. Um, but another component of our lightning round that we do at the end of episodes is something called Off the Map. And your career has been on the map and off the map as it relates to Yacht Rock. Um, but I'm going to let you pick my selection for Off the Map. Off the Map is a song that isn't pure Yacht Rock, but for whatever reason uh, would fit well into a Yacht Rock playlist. Maybe sonically it mixes or whatever. Maybe there's a tie to Yacht Rock. So Michael McDonald maybe saying backups out of tune from 2006, right? I'm asking you, putting you on the spot. What is the yachtiest Amy Grant song in existence? And that's going to be my off the map. Oh, my gosh. That's pretty easy. Uh, it's a song on, on a Never Alone album called Walking Away With You. Perfect. And it's, it's, it's got that whole Michael McDonald kind of keyboard. We were all kind of playing that kind of... Anyway, so I think walking away with you would have to be, uh, in fact, that is pure yacht rock, in my opinion. And since it was on a Christian album, a lot of people may not know about it, but obviously every album she has is platinum or plus. So, yep. Amazing. All right. Cool. Glad I asked. John, anything else you want to ask Chris before we let him go? No, that, that, that was such a great question. I don't even want to dare to try and follow it up. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Chris. And um, we've got to figure out a way to have you back because there's work I There's I so much earlier. more. There's, it's like an onion. You keep peeling it. Wait, there's another layer, another layer, another layer. Just uh, I, I need to like process what I know so far and then think about right. it and have you back and we'll hear the rest of the story some other time. Well, I, I always loved talking about that period in music because it was just so special. And it was magical. You know, it was really a magical time. And, and everybody was everybody was friends. Everybody, there was no, I saw no egos. Everybody was there to get the best records done. And they were all doing it together, which I think we're missing today. You know, people email electric guitar solos and they'll email a drum part. And, you know, mm-hmm. we were all together in the studio in uh, and, and, and the camaraderie, and hey, what about this? Nathan, what about this? Oh, Ricky, what about that? Uh, uh, you know, Greg, what, did, what would you do about this? Well, let's do this. 
you miss that today, I think, by just doing yeah. little pieces over the internet. So that- it, it was by necessity at the time, but at the time we didn't know that there was going to be this other time down the road where we're going to say, man, I wish we were doing it the old way again. <laughs> well, we didn't know how else to do it at that point. There was no other way at the time, right? Well, it's just the true sense of collaboration. Like, you know, all of the times that we hear about, like, just Champlin Foster in, uh, Jay Graydon collaborating in some form or another. And then you have all of, like you said, the session cats coming in and they're all collaborating. You got to put ego aside. You're there to do a job. And just what came out was a, it was a commitment to the art, which I don't know if that exists today to the degree that it did back then. And you know, right. And a lot of times Graydon and Foster would call Steve Kipner and say, Hey, we need some killer lyrics on this song. We've got a track here, but we need some lyrics. And Steve was a great lyricist. So he was a great combination with Jay and with, with Dave and a lot of the songs. Like hard habit to break. That's right. That's right. Cool. Well, this has been a real pleasure. Um, I told Chris before we jumped on the air, this has been my favorite week of prep because oh. I've learned so much. I've fallen in love with a whole new album I never knew existed, and it's just been a pure joy getting to know you, Chris. And we'll have you back again sometime. Thanks, Tom and John. It's been fun. All right. Which brings us to a lightning round. You ready? I am ready. It's quite the buried treasure, but even though we still have to do buried treasure. But uh, do you realize I did the math? This was complicated math, but I, I was able to accomplish it off air. He has more Grammys than Champlin and Graydon. Wow. He has the same of them combined. Yeah, you're right. You want to talk about Unsung Hero? He's got four Grammys, and Champlin has two. And how many did Jay have? He had two, unless we count uh, Birdland, which is three. That's what I thought. So, yeah, uh, that's pretty impressive when you look at it like that. The definition of a buried treasure, is it not? Right. Exactly. That's the point. Well, let me ask you how yachty you find this record because as we're talking to Chris, you know, I find it full on yacht. So mm-hmm. it, there are some elements which I agree with. There's not a ton of like jazz elements strictly or maybe even a ton of R&B but that other wing of yacht rock which is more of the you know the Omardian 5 over 1 doobie bounce type of thing I hear all kinds of that in here so on a scale of 1 to I don't know 100 how yachty do you find it as an overall album yes 75 80 I mean pretty high I think yeah there's not a ton as we've talked about full yacht albums, even amongst the no. you know the the pure hardcore stars like Michael McDonald and Kenny Loggins. But I, this is pure yacht through and through for me. Yeah. So I'm I'm probably over ninety even. It's just it's, one of the things it does have that even some yachty songs don't because we talk about like some of the R and B sort of stuff that kind of floats around the perimeter of yacht rock. Um, I, yes, I see how that stuff connects. But it doesn't always sound, quote, West Coasty to me. This just sounds like the essence of absolute West Coast in the way that, like, Mark Jordan's Blue Desert and Dane Donahue's album. This is right there with those. Yep. And today we learned why. Right. So here's my submission for Does It Float Your Boat. Just that was the question. But just play the beginning of, he brought up the song, Love's Not One to Forget. And tell me that the way that the song opens, it just doesn't feel 100% yachty.
Yeah, you hear those first few bars, you know, and it sounds like it could be a Michael Jackson record. And then as it gets going, I, I, it starts to sound like a Stephen Bishop song. And then once you get to the chorus, it sounds like a player tune. It's got all of those elements sprinkled in, you know? Yeah. It's beauty. It's a beauty. Good Whole record's that way. Yes, it is. Well, uh, my float your boat is more of a commentary. Well, I'll ask you, Does uh, as a bass player, does Nathan East float your boat? Oh, God, yes. Even, uh, I mean, she's come on. Is that even a question? I just got to read this because on on Chris's website, and I invite people to go there because there's so many great pictures of him with all these celebrities and some in-studio stuff, some just celebrity stuff. It's amazing all the people that he hung with. Uh, but there's also the section about his book, and a lot of people have written up about their experiences with him or their, uh, their impressions on the book. Nathan East wrote, and um, kind of Chris alluded to this a little bit, but here's a little write-up that Nathan gave. I met Chris in the early 80s at his beautiful recording studio in L.A. His approach to making records felt very spiritually guided, and we hit it off right away. We worked on numerous projects over the years together, most recently a Christmas album featuring the late Natalie Cole and Al Jarreau, so whenever he had written that. Uh, The Pointer Sisters, Patty Austin, and my group Foreplay were among others. I also had the pleasure of working on several productions at his amazing facility, the studios at Las Colinas in Texas, including rehearsing with Eric Clapton for the inaugural Crossroads Festival. It's so miraculous how the Lord works through us via the talents we've been given, and I will be forever grateful for my friendship with Chris and the blessings of a grandmother's prayer. So I thought that was pretty darn sweet. Wow, cool. Very cool. All right. Well, this is a challenge because the whole episode's about a buried treasure. Right. What have you for buried treasures within the buried treasure? Well, my buried treasure goes back to the one thing that he talked about, that he was at least partly, if not most re- responsible for getting Olivia Newton-John set up to be recording in the United States because he said that John Farrar had kind of approached him. And so he took care of finding the musicians, finding the studio, finding the engineer. So while this is not a Yachty uh, song in and of itself, it's too early in Olivia's career for that because it connects that and starts maybe some of these building blocks going forward, whether you want to call it proto-yacht, pre-yacht, whatever. Uh, I wanted to play this song because this is from the 1976 album Olivia did called Don't Stop Believing." It's co-written with John Farrar and Chris Christian. It's mixed by Bill Schnee, and this one's called Compassionate Man. So not yachty in and of itself, but, you know, you got to plant a few seeds before you get the giant oak to grow, right? <laughs> this is true. Yep. yep. Uh, but it's it's not completely so far off the map that it doesn't fit, you know. Yep. And it's amazing to me how far and wide Chris Christian's tentacles kind of weave their way throughout all sorts of music. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I, I want to play seven degrees of Chris Christian now um, and see how closely I'm related to just about anyone in the world. I'm only two degrees from OJ. <laughs> I was just going to say, I'll bet this connects us to Kevin Bacon now because we got the Kardashians, so I got to think they're connected somehow. Uh, it's amazing. Yep. Wow, what a life. Well, uh, here's my buried treasure. Okay. A buried treasure amongst buried treasures in an episode about buried treasures. So mm. this is very meta. It's like the turducken of buried treasures. Correct. Yes. Um, we talked about those four tunes that were supposed to be for his next album. Yeah. Um, and one of which was actually my gateway drug into Chris Christian. And that is a tune called Walnut Hill. And what I want you to play is what Foster and uh, Graydon and Champlin would call the wire choir. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guitar solo that he said was Dan Hoff, right? Yep. So check out maybe a little bit of the chorus into the Wire Choir guitar solo. The rising of the 
Yeah, I had to look that one up. I tried to look it up, let's say, because I thought, oh, that's got to be Graydon. But then when I saw the Dan Huff thing, and he obviously lauded a lot of praise on Dan, that's pretty sweet. Yep. It's a great tune. That's a, it just is. a great tune. And it fits on that record, even though it wasn't from that record. Yeah, you could tell it was remixed at a later date sonically, but... Uh, yeah, I would love to have heard what that second album was going to be because I picked one of those songs as well as my off the map. So um, I'm going to go with that. I'm going to tell you what my off the map is. And we know that uh, the Yacht Faithful do not like to allow America on the boat. And um, he actually did a song with Jerry Beckley of America. So that is going to be my off the map pick. It's one of those bonus tracks. And this one's called Daylight Today. Well, that was your off the map. Okay. Well, which brings me to my off the map because Walnut Hill is actually my buried treasure. Right. Off the map. We already did it. We let Chris pick it, right? We, let's hear. Uh, he said, walking away with you was an easy pick to be Amy Grant's yachtiest tunes. Well, let's give it a listen. He calls me to the darkness. No wonder he thought, you know, he didn't have to think it over too much. Yeah. When I went and reviewed that one, I instantly went, as I told you, to the bass part. And then I had to look up who it was. And lo and behold, David Hungate, you know, laying it down. Man, what a part. What a part. What a tune. I'm glad. I wonder what else is out there by Amy Grant that's yachty. Anyways, well, we said we'd have Chris back and maybe he could tell us. But that's a great choice, Chris. Thank you. Your uh, inaugural uh, excursion into Off the Map and the lightning round was well played, my friend. Absolutely. Well, that was an interesting story. Uh, like I said, all the prep was really cool, and then you get him on, and he starts dropping names and yeah. telling stories, and you're like, where are we? My prep was completely roasted. He blazed through all my questions, but but he told the, he linked them all together in a way that I never imagined that they even connected. So he blew away all my homework, but uh, eventually we got an oh, A for the class, for sure. I think. so, Or maybe incomplete, because there's more to the story. I mean, you, you would have fun just going on the Wikipedia page and just saying, oh, let's learn about this guy's life. But instead, go read the book, which is out on Amazon. We'll link to it in the show notes and check that out. Give it a read, and you'll learn as much as we did and much, much more. Truth. All right. Well. Speaking of truth, we know how to sign it off. I'll let you uh, have the honors this week. Ahoy, ploy. Uh, that was me. Uh,